This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Sunday, Sunday, come on down for the big podcast spectacular. We're trampling audio with Podzilla. (laughs) What? What Come on down to the internet auto show. We've got cars on fire and people talk about books. Strong Bad, what are you doing right now? (laughs) I'm running. Wait, that turned into something else. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast for the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we're gearing up for a big show today. So I was trying to get us ready for like a demo derby or something. Big, yeah, we're going to crash books into each other and roll around in the mud and eat fried corn dogs. Did you ever, maybe you didn't watch enough like wrestling as a kid, but did you ever see those commercials for like carzilla and like, i i only ever saw Digger. like the the trickle down parodies so like the simpsons oh, okay. and like all the associated stuff uh, yeah it's like the cars had like personalities like they were characters and it was unclear if they actually had feuds or not and I what do, they I just, could I be do appreciate over I do appreciate whatever modern day like P.T. Barnum convinced families that like coming on down and watching men crash crappy cars into each other was like a good family Sunday activity. Don't get hit by a tire. Eat a bunch of corn dogs. (laughs) This week we are here to talk about a book, one of uh, the most famous books of American history. I can say without reservation, Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell. Andrew read it. He's going to tell us about it. I read it. It took a while. It's a long book. Yeah, more like Long with the Wind, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> now, I've never read this book, Andrew. Um, I've seen some of the film. I have not seen the whole film. I haven't seen the movie either. I will say lengthwise, I think it's I think it's up there with Infinite Jest, but it also it also wants you to read it, which is not something you can say of Infinite Jest. No, so Infinite it, it Jest. It didn't feel as yes. difficult as it did to read that one. Yeah, reading Infinite Jest is like trying to fight Carzilla or whatever. Like it wants <laughs> you to, to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, so Margaret Mitchell, born in 1900, passed away in 1949. Is that right? It's really Im- right. Yeah, those dates are right, and it's really important to remember as you're reading and talking about this book that those dates are a long time after the dates where the American Civil War happened, which is like nineteen or 1861 to 1865. Yes. Uh, so she grew up in Atlanta. She lived in and uh, died in Atlanta. Um, her father's side were Scottish immigrants who came over during the Revolutionary War. Her grandfather served in the Confederate Army. Her mother's side were Irish immigrants uh, who settled on a slaveholding plantation in Georgia. And her grandparents also emigrated and were in the Confederate Army. Um, her mom was a suffragette. 
and she attended some like you know get women the vote meetings as a kid margaret did uh, margaret also went by peggy by the time she started going to uh, college right and so, by the time the was it the 19th amendment that gave women the vote by the time whichever amendment that was had been passed um she was i think she was like 15 when that happened yes so um, yeah she spent a lot of time growing up with her grandmother annie stevens um which i found interesting and this i guess i don't know if there's some of this in this book or not andrew um annie stevens sent her daughters up to the north for finishing school I mm-hmm. can't remember if it was in New York or if it was in Massachusetts or somewhere, um, where some of them were shocked to learn that Irish immigrants were not being treated very well. Um, this was like the beginning of the 20th century, right? Late 19th century. And I read some that there were like, that there are like slur, anti-Irish slurs in this book uh, against maybe some minor characters. I'm not sure that like, do a little bit of equivocating in terms of or uh, equating how different marginalized populations have been treated throughout American history. Um, you know, like we were also treated bad because we're from Ireland. Yeah, which there's is not there's the same as that. slavery. <laughs> um, uh, there, there are different in both the like the black society and the white society in *Gone with the Wind*. There are different like strata socially so like on the black side you have field slaves versus house slaves that's mostly where the uh the line is drawn and Mm -hmm. then on the white side you have like crackers or white white trash essentially like people who don't own a lot of land don't own a lot of slaves aren't uh considered to be gentlemen or ladies sure sure and then you have the like the landed slave holding population that's kind of on top of them Okay, and then you have Yankees who are a whole nother thing. That's like a whole other thing. Yankees, oh yeah. boy. Um, so Margaret Mitchell, when she was growing up, she also spent she spent time with like older relatives. Their family would t- do like family visits on Sundays or over the summer or whatever. And that's yeah, how it she... was primarily her grandmother on her mother's Mom, side. Mom's side. Um, so there, there's a lot of sort of biographical bits. Um stuffed into Gone with the Wind. So Scarlett O'Hara, our our main character, she is um the daughter of Gerald O'Hara, who is from Ireland, like a like an immigrant sure. who came okay. over from Ireland, like ran away from some a murder that his family didn't hold to be murder, but that society still nevertheless okay. <laughs> believed to be murder. And then his, her mother was like a a great lady of of French descent. But um Yes, yeah, so, so uh, Ka- Margaret Mitchell was removed from this by two generations, I think. So she herself was not, you know, she has no firsthand knowledge of of the Civil War or of Reconstruction. But she heard through her maternal grandmother and through a lot of older folks growing up, like stories of the Civil War and of Reconstruction and. The story goes that um, she grew up hearing all these stories of the Confederacy and she didn't hear until she was 10 years old that the Confederacy had actually lost the war. (laughs) Yeah, this was in an interview with the Atlanta Journal uh, Sunday magazine in like 1938 or something. And she talks about how she learned how the ladies nurse in hospitals and the way that gangrene smelled and 
the different drugs that they used. And I'd heard everything in the world except that the Confederates lost the war. When I was 10 years old, it was a violent shock to learn that General Lee had been defeated. I didn't believe it when I first heard it, and I was indignant. I still find it hard to believe so strong are childhood impressions. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I can't even... I mean, I guess there is a, like, lens of modernity to... How could you not have known? But I... Like, I just look back and I'm like, how did you not know? And I guess I I know exactly how she didn't know. Like, she was hearing... She was only hearing about it from family members. She was not, like... I don't know what she was or was not learning about it in school. Well, she was... I mean, from family and from friends. Like, I I don't know what the schooling would have been like. But from family and friends, you know, it's... A lot of it's just kind of swapping ward stories. And when that happens in the book, it's all about, I guess, like... It's a way for people to commiserate and say, oh, I remember having it this bad and you do, too. And so we have a bond over that. Yes. But um, um, so as a yeah, kid- and, and so when people talk about it that way, yeah, they're not going to be like, oh, remember when we lost the war and had to surrender to these people who we consider to be inferior to us like nobody really chats about that one on the back porch while you're sipping a mint julep they do not um and we'll talk a little bit more obviously about about the specifics of what happened and and what takes place in this book but um she when she was six she went on a buggy tour of the plantations that were ruined by general sherman's march um and i guess like at the time, and for some folks still, this book is a, like, oh, look at what was lost in a, this, like, heroic, tragic sense. Yeah, it's, the- it's really about, it's, I mean, it's about a lot of things, but yeah. one of the things it's about is look at the death of this society, and, like, something has gone out of the world because it's not around anymore. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is to then read a lot of the uh, the scholarship of it that is critical of it for for making that argument and it is still presenting those in a way it's presenting the same facts and looking at it and going yeah but should we be sad about what was lost or it is not uh critical enough of what was lost the book is or whatever you might say yeah i mean i think i think you can you can make you you can talk about the horrors of war as presented in this book Oh, yeah. And separate that a little bit from what the war was about. Just like the descriptions of human suffering and, and of concrete things that happened and, and to, to individual people. But, yeah, I don't know. There's a, there's a quote of hers where she says, um, If Gone with the Wind has a theme, it is that of survival. What makes some people come through catastrophes and others apparently just as able, strong, and brave go under. Um what qualities are in those who fight their way tri- through triumphantly that are lacking those that go under? I only know that survivors used to call that quality gumption. So I wrote about people who had gumption and people who didn't. Mm-hmm. So again, she's not, she's looking back on this as a, I can't believe this time and place is gone. And from what I have read, and then we'll spend the episode talking about this, like not necessarily looking at it as a lot of people do today with a sense of uh, maybe what went away should have gone away. Um, so there's that. There, it's, it's just that it's just that you cannot, you cannot, 
disentangle what went away with the atrocities that Correct. made that way of life possible. And Correct. the book is not interested in in um, being honest about that. But but to, so to go back to to Mitchell and talk about her. Yeah, sure. I guess her mindset and what would have been like the prevailing conventional wisdom in the time where she was coming up. There is a um, trilogy of books by this guy named Thomas Dixon, who is um, Thomas Dixon Jr. Yes, yeah, who 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 wrote these three books primarily about the Ku Klux Klan, um, mostly the first version of it, the Reconstruction era version. Um, that was at least in in his telling. Uh, mostly a political movement that sort of that, that rose up in opposition to the Reconstruction era government and like the freed uh, African Americans who were given the vote and were in in his estimation and in the narrative of Gone with the Wind like were running roughshod over the the poor the true Southerners the Confederates who who had been defeated in in the Civil War. Um, so she, yeah, she read his book. She was a big fan of his, um, the movie also based on Dixon's work, the birth of a nation is maybe a name that you've, you've yep. heard because it's been brought up like depressingly recently by major figures in American politics yep. as a sort of inspiration of, and that, of sorts. But. That film is credited with helping to create the second wave of the KKK, like at right. the tail end of the 19 teens, you look at you know the first two decades of the 20th century with a lot of the creation and enforcement of a bunch of Jim Crow laws in the South, which disenfranchised and, and hurt a lot of black communities in the South um, and, and just made either legal or otherwise tolerable a lot of just awful, uh, terrible stuff. Um, yeah. And, and even, even Dixon, interestingly, in, in the third book in particular called The Traitor, I think was the name of that third book, he does draw a contrast between like the quote unquote good KKK and the bad KKK, oh, which neat. I think the bad clan um, is, is what he viewed as it's like the second wave. But he, he thinks that the first wave of it was mostly, yeah, like a, like I said, a political movement. That, that came about in reaction to corruption by like the new reconstruction government. And then the second one was more vengeful and violent. And hmm. I don't know, like it's, it's all <laughs> like, it's reconstruction as viewed in this book is interesting because it's all about the, you know, the Northern government coming down and with the backing of the, what had been the union army, what was the United, what was then the United States army. Um, like there's just all of this corruption and stealing and like disenfranchising anybody who had anything to do with the Confederacy. And it was, it was bad. And like, do I believe that the victors in the civil war came down to the state that they thought they had beaten and like, were only too happy to steal money from them and do bad stuff because they didn't think that they would be held accountable. Yeah, sure. I'm sure that happened. But also there's a lot of language about like newly freed slaves being too lazy and stupid to govern themselves. So, yeah. <laughs> again, you, you have, you have what might be legitimate grievances inextricably inextricably linked with with this 
like this dark blot on like America's original sin, essentially. Yeah. So the Reconstruction era um, was eighteen sixty three, which was you know starts it starts with the legal end of slavery in eighteen sixty three, or with the end of the Confederacy in eighteen sixty five, and then kind of extends to the presidency of Rutherford B Hayes in eighteen seventy seven. Um, you know, like the Thirteenth Amendment with no more slavery, and the Fourteenth Amendment with equal protection laws, and the three like, and I think we'll. We'll, cr- we'll probably meet some of these folks in the book, Andrew. There are carpetbaggers mm-hmm. who are Northerners coming down for moral imperative, like we got to help folks, or financial gain, I bet I could make a buck, or politics, I could be in charge. In um, the book, they're mostly portrayed as the make a buck. Yeah, variety. make a buck. And not to say, again, like, we, like you said, there were probably and definitely were probably indefinitely that's a dumb thing to say um <laughs> that is a thing that people would do for sure and people did um but also i don't know i don't know what you do there um there were scalawags which were radical republicans who were from the south who were trying to advance like radical reconstruction and, and yeah basically the carpetbaggers were people from the north who came down and did bad stuff scalawags were people from the south who saw an opportunity it. and yeah also did bad stuff um and then there were some republicans that actually split off called redeemers who were sympathetic to you know survivors of the confederacy basically um and were like what if we just like got just got just like eased up a bit yeah and in the book that takes the form of quote-unquote normal people who move down to the north because they heard good things about like atlanta this city on the grow that was yeah sure coming up from the ashes of the confederacy they came down they witnessed um republican corruption in the government and turned democrat and then to when we say republican and democrat in the context of this book it is almost completely divorced for from the modern incarnations of those parties. So like, correct. Don't worry about that. <laughs> like you can, but, um, you can do a sort of inverse for like civil rights issues, but even that's not one-to-one. Yeah. A sort of inverse for civil rights issues while a rough like continuity with states rights stuff, yes, but it's yeah. all, it's all really complicated. And yeah. And yeah. Um, um, so then again, like we're going to probably dip in and out of the history stuff as we, talk about uh what happens in the book yeah we're just trying to kind of provide a rough historical backdrop especially for our non-american listeners yeah for sure and and i will say also like just going through all of this stuff i'm very glad i was like i almost like wanted to tweet about it like i love having a book podcast that like forces me to go back and learn stuff i should have learned better yeah because I, I don't think i've read about scalawags since i was in like, <laughs> like fifth grade years. social studies yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so just like briefly kind of closing our segment on mitchell here um as you were saying like she was steeped in this kind of southern fiction um she was steeped in atlanta's history and atlanta had been a target by sherman because it was uh, this like it had four different railroads that helped supply the Confederate army. So taking it out had this big impact on the war. Yeah. So when um, we talk about um, General Sherman, there was a push toward the end of the of the Civil War called, you know, it was, it was his march to the sea. Yep. Essentially. And what he did was he marched south from the north, like through Georgia, through Atlanta 
and burned everything, including yep. the homes and food of civilians just in this in this effort to so thoroughly demoralize the South and sap it of resources that they would surrender. And yep. it was it was it was successful. Yeah, it was successful. It also it like that is an, an atrocity. Yeah, it's a war Still, atrocity. It but, is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so I think what we'll encounter that that kind of feeds into some of the southern lost cause stuff that I want to save. I think a little bit once we get into the book proper. Yeah, right. But um, when we talk about um, Mitchell, like she, so she went on this on this tour, like 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 you said, Craig, of as as a child with her mother through these sort of rotting old plantations, and there were these chimneys standing up called uh, Sherman Sentinel Sentinels. Yeah, that were the like the burned out remains of houses and 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 other structures that were left once all that burning had happened. And when you talk in the book about like southern resentment of of Yankees, like some of it is wrapped up in, in pride and just in losing the war, and then some of it is wrapped up in like this incalculable suffering brought upon civilians by by northerners who just wanted to to end the war yes which again does not excuse the incalculable human toll of slavery no and, no no no, no. And, and but not, like yeah, I, I, it, it's easy to get in that circular logic i know for myself um but it's it also is it is like rooted in the psychology of this book um so just quickly wrapping up her biography she went off to smith college margaret did um, she almost married a guy who died in World War One. Um, she lost her mother in 1919 to the Spanish flu epidemic. Um, she was then married twice. Um, John Marsh is who I think she was with for the rest of the for the rest of her life. Um, I think um, she was a reporter for the Atlanta Journal, and she has three other novels or novelettes in addition to Gone with the Wind. Two of them are like unpublished or gone um the big With four no <laughs> uh the big four is thought to be destroyed <laughs> i get it I, I see what you did there um she had an unpublished novelette called ropa carmagan and then her novelette the lost lazen was uh published in 1996 actually like 80 and that was her first she wrote. Like, she wrote that when she was like 15 yeah. um and she began writing gone with the wind in 1926 um originally the character's name was pansy o'hara and an editor at Macmillan said, "Change it to Scarlet." Yeah, Pansy's the, the worst name. <laughs> it's not as it's not as definitive, I don't think. Um, it did. Uh, she had read like hundreds of old magazines and diaries for research. Um, you know everything from like what people wore to how guns worked. Um, some of the history of Atlanta was based on her brother Stephen Mitchell's research on wartime Atlanta. Um, it received the national, the second ever National Book Award in 1936. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1937, uh, and a film was made of it. Maybe you've heard of it in 1939, starring it's called Clark, 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 Clark Gable and Gibeon Lee. Uh, it took home nine uh, Academy Awards with like 13 nominations, and it's notable also for Hannah McDaniel won the first Academy Award for an African American actor. Um, which also then led for playing Mammy, and then that led to the leader of the NAACP calling her an Uncle Tom um, for 
being in this movie that perpetuated myths of Southern history. Yeah, and I can um, totally 100% sympathize with that. Yeah, and it's... Like, it's... it's uh, she She had a quote, I think, that's something along the lines of, like, I'd rather be paid like hundreds of dollars or whatever the fee was to play a maid than get paid $1 to be one or something. Mm-hmm. And there's that constant push push and pull of here's a professional actress who is making money and is in this big successful film. Um, and like that is a, potentially a good thing um, in terms of people getting work. But the work you're making is perpetuating things that, politically are perhaps very harmful yeah um, i mean like that that i don't have good answers personally no there i don't think there there are any and that that kind of push and pull within within like black culture in america like how how to progress how to move forward like is like has has always has always been there like i think if you I think if you think about like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, like the way that their proposed like methods differed, you get like maybe the most, yeah, um, and, uh, yes, instructive yeah. like contrast. But yeah, that's that, that's a tension that has existed since it was like since necessary the, for it yes, to exist. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you want to dive into the book, Andrew? We can circle back on some of the any other background stuff that I do man it's 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 tough because i think this book is really it's really well written and really effective in a lot of different ways okay. but also it's whitewashing a lot of stuff in really unfortunate ways so like yeah. it's yeah it's th- that i think that that tension is going to come up more than once as we talk about it and you've probably heard it already as we've sort of talked about the interpretation of how reconstruction went versus like the stuff that reconstruction was intended to correct for so yeah so what who is this book about like literally in the book in the book who is the book about literally in the book yeah you know that's a long way of saying tell me about the characters in the, book. <laughs> <laughs> the book is about scarlett o'hara and as the book opens, she is a 16-year-old um, a, a maiden, I guess. She's, a, she's been raised to be a Southern lady. It's, it's uh, 19, or 1861, I think, like just before the war. Like People are talking about the war all the time, but war hasn't actually happened yet. And she's got no concerns in her head other than like, who likes her and how can she capitalize on this. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, let's, I'll just, uh, to tell you about Scarlet, I will just read you the first bit of part one, chapter one. Scarlet O'Hara was not beautiful, but men seldom realized it when caught by her charm as the Tarleton twins were. In her face were two sharply blended the delicate features of her mother, a coast aristocrat of French descent, and the heavy ones of her florid Irish father. But it was an arresting face, pointed of chin, square of jaw. Her eyes were pale green without a touch of hazel starred with bristly black lashes and slightly tilted at the ends. Above them, her thick black brows slanted upward, cutting a startling oblique line in her magnolia white skin, that skin so prized by southern women and so carefully guarded with bonnets, veils, and mittens against hot Georgia suns. So this first paragraph does a lot of work. It tells you about (laughs) Scarlet. It tells you a lot about the kinds of things that are in Scarlet's mind and that are on this society's mind. Sure. Um, it tells you a lot about how much like heritage and and 
like provenance what were, of people. what you were born yeah. to like has to do with how you are valued in the society. And it also shows you what Margaret Mitchell can do with some descriptiveness because yeah. she's pretty good at it. <laughs> okay. And so what is Scarlet like going to do or what are people going to do to her? For so her? I'll just, I'll, I'll split the book up for you into five parts. Um, Thanks. And we are gonna we are going to experience these events primarily through the eyes of Scarlet, but also with some assists from other characters who will come layups. up as we talk yeah. about stuff. Yeah, layups and <laughs> and uh, alley oops and what do you call it when you pass a football to a from one man to another man and they a run pass? it in to the goal from the touchdown? Do you mean a pass or do you yeah. mean like a lateral? Whatever, like an assist. Do you get like an assist for a touchdown in football? No, you just pass the ball. So you're and not like involved in the touchdown it. at all? No, you get credit. You, it's just called a touchdown, but you threw it. But you still get credit. Like the li- the lineage of the touchdown is still important. <laughs> yes, you must trace where the, all the touchdowns come from. You have to know who their fathers are, where uh-huh. they were born, uh-huh. and what and land they they came owned. from Ireland. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so part one is primarily a glimpse at antebellum Southern society. Okay. So, because the book is going to be about surviving things and about mourning something that has been lost, this bit of the book is going to show us the thing that we are losing. Oh, okay. It's so great. What's so great about it? It's just very nice, and everybody <laughs> knows everybody knows how to act. Oh, that is that the pr- like. Okay, so that seems to me that this like. You alluded to the cast nature of the book or that the the casts that the different characters are in. And f- what I've been reading about kind of Lost Cause South, like what what we were fighting for, what they say they were fighting for, if not actually to defend slavery, um, was this like for lo- for maybe simpler way of life where you knew where you stood and you knew how to act because of your lot in life. And isn't that, in a way, freeing? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean that. <laughs> that's that is a lot of what is what is happening here. Okay. Um. So we are given we are basically given a very rosy view of antebellum of the antebellum South from the perspective of the people who ran it. <laughs> um. Uh-huh. Gerald O'Hara, Scarlett's father, is. Uh, like a first generation in- immigrant who married well and has sort of fought his way into not like literally fought but but he has land he has standing and it's all been something that he has earned has earned with his his labor and his own two hands yeah for sure um other things he owns with his own two hands are people oh (laughs) um our actual (laughs) slaves and so so most of slavery as you see in this book is it's mostly house slaves. Okay. And these slaves are going to be, they are sometimes considered to be part of the family, like Mammy, who the the slave I think we spend the most time with, who is never given another name. Now there is a book authorized by the Mitchell estate called Ruth's Journey, I think, which is a... Is that about her? Yeah, it's about it's about Mammy and it's yeah, I, I haven't really read anything about it. It came out I think in twenty fourteen. Um, oh wow. But, but um 
Yeah, so so most of what you see of slavery is people who are stereotypes to be a hundred percent sure, but they also are treated well, like you might treat a beloved pet or something. Uh, yeah. Um and this is so this I think this section of the book is of a lineage with what is considered anti-Tom literature or plantation literature. Yeah, definitely. So I, I asked you to read a little bit about the history of that because it came up as I was re- researching Mitchell. Yeah, so these are books that were written in response to Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was published in 1851 and 52. Uh, it was <laughs> Uncle Tom's Cabin was the second best-selling book of the 19th century. Do you want to know what number one was, Andrew? Was it Gone with the Wind? <laughs> no, it was, this is the 19th century. Oh, 19th century. What was it? The Bible. So oh, Nito. The Bible Nito and then Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, mm-hmm. And then in 1852 alone, there were eight anti-Tom novels published. And their, primary, their two primary arguments are slavery is actually pretty good and Stowe got it wrong. Like, it's not as bad as she says it was or it's great. Um, and usually it would feature a like patriarchal master uh, and a pure wife who presided over like childlike enslaved people who just desperately needed people like people to own them or else they wouldn't know what to do with themselves. Um, The genre kind of died with the advent of the civil war, of course. (laughs) Uh, And there are three notable examples that I just want to hit on. One is aunt Phyllis's cabin, by Mary Henderson Eastman, which is just another, like, it's just a classic of the form. Notable, I think the title is itself a rebuke of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's one by the, uh, called The Sword and the Distaff by William Gilmore Sims, which is set during the Revolutionary War, which I think is done primarily to, like, tie the, like, the benign positiveness of slavery to just American heritage. Uh-huh. So if you can make an argument that it's like we're we fought with you in the Revolutionary War, so like you can't have problems with it now. That sucks. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> there's also and then there's the Planter's Northern Bride by Carolyn Lee Hentz and uh, published eighteen fifty four, and that portrayed a Northern bride uh, marrying a Southern slave owner. And like learning that it's not so bad after all, and also helped to stoke fears of like slave rebellion. So like, if we don't perpetuate this system of human enslavement, they will rise up and cause violence. So yeah, yeah. So, so this this plantation fiction sort is of propaganda. In, it is propaganda, and it also stands in opposition. So I, I read uh, Kindred by uh, Octavia Butler, yes. and that is a book that is in the the um the the history of the slave narrative which is yes. pretty much the opposite it's like firsthand accounts and then later fictionalized accounts as as gone with the wind is um intended to expose the realities and the horrors of slavery to to a sympathetic or undecided audience i guess yeah um, so this first- and then and yeah and so so gone with the wind is drawing from these like those the Dixon books that we mentioned and all this all the firsthand stuff that uh, Mitchell was told to paint this picture picture of slavery as not that bad and also of slaves as being happy with their lot in life. 
Sure. Like happy to have decisions made with them, happy to be part of the family in whatever way. And when they were given freedom, like not knowing what to do with it and sort of descending into corruption and anarchy. Cool. Okay. Oh, it is cool. It's super cool. Yeah. Ugh. Um, so like do is it is the first part mostly just like Scarlet living her life? Yeah, it's in Scarlet living days. her life. Like she's talking with the Tarleton twins. She's talking with Gerald about this guy she likes, Ashley Wilkes. Okay. Um, and then she goes to a party where so Ashley has been. He, it is it is rumored, and when I say it is rumored, I mean it is true. And word <laughs> has just spread super fast because all these people have nothing to do but talk about each other with each other. Um, that Ashley is going to be marrying his cousin Melanie because that's just well, you know, it's just a thing that you did. You just yeah. married your cousin is fine. Yeah. Um, lots of kings and, and queens have done that, Andrew. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Kings and queens and kings and queens are doing great these days. Yeah, they're on the they're on the rise. I hear. Yeah, love those royal weddings, royal babies. Like everything's going great for kings and queens. So- <laughs> So uh, Scarlet hears this, and because she's been in love with Ashley since forever, her stomach falls out of her body and onto the ground. Not literally, I, but I like, did not know really... this was a magical realist. Novel. No, it's not. <laughs> it might be. I. I. It might have been better if it was. Even. I didn't. I didn't dislike it, but if it did have magical realism, that would have been interesting. So she's um, very upset. So she's upset and she concocts this plan where at this at the party tomorrow where everyone is going because they have parties all the time where they can just hang out and be ladies and men can get together and yell about states rights. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, she is going to tell Ashley how much she loves him and because the engagement has not actually has not officially been announced yet he will realize that he is getting married to the wrong person and he will be with her instead and everything will be great. This just sounds like a 90s teen movie. To sure. Me. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to go there, I'm going to say my piece and he's just going to know or mostly in 90s teen, teen movies she's going to know. It's a dude who's going to I think well in it. 90s teen movies also there would be a component where like Scarlett would take her glasses off and it yeah. turned out that she was like pretty all along. Yes. Uh-huh. That's true. Um so does it work? No, it doesn't work. <laughs> She goes to this party and she tells Ashley when they have a moment alone and he is like, yeah, I, I love you, I guess, but I got to got to marry Melanie. I can't like that's I just got to do the thing I said I was going to do because I'm a real southern gentleman. Mm. And there so there's this guy at this party named Rhett Butler and he's like he's very handsome and debonair, but also he said bad things about the Confederacy like. You guys don't have any factories or infrastructure, and if you start a war, you will lose. (laughs) And that's not a super popular sentiment among the other people at this party. I can't imagine why it wouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Huh. But Scarlet, like Scarlet, even here kind of finds herself silently agreeing with him and Mm. not caring that much about the cause. Oh, interesting. Like she, like has a fine time living at her house, but she's not like, I really wish everyone went to war. It's just, yeah, it's just not something she thinks about. Like people, yeah, she's a kid, get all shiny eyed when the cause is mentioned. And, but, but she just doesn't, she does not have any particular attachment to the idea. Okay. 
Um, so at the end of this party, somebody runs up and is like, hey, war, it's wartime. War started. <laughs> and everybody in the South is just like, you know, we'll go and we'll fight the Yankees. We'll fight them for like a week and they'll get totally demoralized and we'll own them because one Southern gentleman is worth 10 Yankees. Sure. And we're just going to lick them. We're going to lick them good and they're going to be licked. Now, is there the expectation of characters in this book? And this is actually something from the historic record I don't know. So, like, the st- the southern states want to secede from the Union, and then they go to war because th- nobody wants, like, the North doesn't want that to happen. I believe at this point they have. They have seceded. I think. Okay. I didn't, this isn't something I I researched specifically either but the idea of the confederacy is already a thing okay 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 and like and and so washington like the the union the rest of the united states they never recognized the confederacy correct sovereignty and neither did like the the confederacy got a couple of like middling not even a couple of nods, I guess, from countries in Europe, but really most of the world never accepted that this was a thing. And it was it had only been a hundred years, not even not even a hundred years, yeah. Since we were like, Hey, we're the guys who left Britain recognize mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. On this stolen land that we stole. Yeah, so all these like million year old countries over in Europe are just like, Oh geez, again. <laughs> Didn't you guys guys just have like a big war in 1812? Seems like every 50 years you guys are just like <laughs> causing some trouble. What's the deal? This is the really Andrew and Craig's Cliff's Notes American history lessons. Hey, I got a five on that AP test, so I feel like I am qualified. Out of to... a possible five? Yeah. Oh, nice. I am qualified to have talked about it 15 years ago, is what I'm saying. <laughs> um,. Okay, so war breaks out. So war breaks out, and and Scarlet at the end of this party is so, she's so her hackles are so up about Ashley rejecting her and about Rhett seeing her, and so there's this guy Charlie Charles Charles Hamilton who has been flirting with her and she's been leading him on because she just kind of leads dudes on to make other dudes jealous, um, and he's very timid and and so her paying any attention to him at all makes him instantly fall head over heels in love with her. Mm. And so at the end of the party, he asks her to marry him because he's going to go off to war and we just need to, we need to get some things rolling if we're going to get him rolled. Yeah, that makes sense. And she is so distressed that she just says she agrees. (laughs) Okay. And so I'm going to, this is how chapter seven opens and it's, Again, like Margaret Mitchell's a really good writer. Okay. She's okay. just really good. Within two weeks, Scarlett had become a wife, and within two months, she was a widow. She was soon released from the bond she had assumed with so little haste, with so much haste and so little thought, but she was never again to know the careless freedom of her unmarried days. Widowhood had crowded closely on the heels of marriage, but to her dismay, motherhood soon followed. Think about like all the work. That paragraph's doing a lot of work, too. Yo. Okay, Margaret Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Okay, Margaret Mitchell. So here's some more here's some more stuff about the war. The South was intoxicated with enthusiasm and excitement. Everyone knew that one more battle 
would end the war and every young man hastened to enlist before the war should end, hastened to marry his sweetheart before he rushed off to Virginia to strike a blow at the Yankees. There were dozens of war wed- wed- there were dozens of war weddings in the county and there was little time for his sorrow of parting for everyone was too busy and excited for either solemn thoughts or tears. The ladies were making uniforms, knitting socks and rolling bandages and the men were drilling and shooting. Trainloads of troops passed through Jonesboro daily on their way north to Atlanta and Virginia. Some detachments were gaily uniformed in the scarlets and light blues and greens of select social militia companies. Some small groups were in homespun and coonskin caps. Others, ununiformed, were in broadcloth and fine linen. All were half-drilled, half-armed, wild with excitement, and shouting as though en route to a picnic. The sight of these men threw the county boys into a panic for fear the war would be over before they could reach Virginia and preparations for the troops departure were speeded. So that gives you some idea early war of how optimistic the South is like we all got to get up there and get fighting or else we're going to miss the fun. Yeah. And I guess in the moment or or in any other context in this part of the book, is there like a. It reminds me of other war books where it's like yo they're so excited but it's really sad and they don't know it yet like is that operating yet i think most of the time you the reader are expected to do that work bring your own knowledge of how the civil war works out and the tragedy it comes oh into that. like you, like you get some stuff through Rhett where he is obviously saying exactly what would happen and why <laughs> yeah but like as as mitchell is is telling you stuff and as you're watching the south slowly kind of crumble and become demoralized and get thrown back and back like you are you read the tragedy into that because you know what happens, but the characters in the book mostly don't know how that's you know how it's going. Yeah, go. of course, no, of course, and the, the, but there's not a like narrative voice, like no, there's not some heavy-handed later. foreshadowing that's like oh, the, all the young boys were going off to war and they were really excited about it, but little did they know that yeah, the the, the strong hand of history had other plans <laughs> well i'm, I'm something just like that well i'm thinking about i'm thinking about um oh gosh the book from world war one uh all quiet on the western front which is like the seminal and uh, you know spurred on other books as as wars got it's like worse. The, the lost generation war book yeah and and the way that literature responded to both world war one and world war two um I think even World War One because it was such an unprecedented scale for for folks that like oh, yeah. how do we anybody looking back on it was just like to tell a story of it at all was to say like this was terrible and if only they knew how terrible it was going to be and it sounds like uh, writing about a war fifty to sixty years earlier. Uh, she is not in that mode. I mean, yeah, you get you get some things through Rhett and some through Scarlet, especially as things as things sort of deteriorate. About you know, this is this is such a waste. This is a, a yeah, waste sure. of life, a waste of resources. And even though through Scarlet, that's mostly that sentiment is mostly being expressed in like, I really would like to be out, like partying and flirting right now <laughs> it's very personal for because her because that's yeah. because that's what scarlet is is the most concerned about because that's you know she's a 17 year old girl um, of means 
who, means yeah or of previously of means yes um oh that's a good point okay yeah but i, I feel it so we, we're not even through part one yet oh sorry i know <laughs> so i, know, I just I know. i'll just i'll blast through what the rest of the part's about so part one is antebellum south and very star of the war part two is scarlet moves to atlanta and the war continues, but it's clear that things aren't going entirely well for the South. And you, you see this show up mostly in the forms of, you know, like death lists and just news that comes back to Atlanta from the front sure. of failures. Okay. Essentially. And then things are slowly getting a little bit shabbier and a little more expensive. Um, Rhett is making his money running stuff through the blockades so the yankees because they have ships and the south does not they immediately blockade all the port cities in the south and that blockade lasts through the entirety of the war like that that is a if you're thinking about this clearly as like through your age of empires brain like starting a war before you have the means to keep your ports open is a pretty big miscalculation on the part yeah. of old Jefferson Davis. That's um, not, that's yeah. That's uh, not good. Part three is the war ends. It's, it's the, the slow march of Yankee troops to Atlanta, the fall of Atlanta and the end of, of the war. Um, Scarlet, runs back to her the the plantation she was raised on Tara is the name of it and um she is like she, Atlanta is literally burning down behind her it's very scary and, and apocalyptic and, yeah like, I was gonna ask and, like she's there for it yeah, yeah right she okay. she is there for it um Melanie who had married Ashley who is missing presumed dead at this point in the book is having a baby like she has just had she is she is birthing a baby as Atlanta burns and there is nobody in any position of authority around to help Scarlet. So Scarlet just has to remember the very, very vague snippets that she can remember of her own birth. And as I think anybody who has ever given birth can tell you that it's pretty fuzzy. Like your brain (laughs) mercifully helps you to forget a lot of that stuff. Yeah. As your Um, brain is like, maybe you want to do it again. So like maybe forget some of the stuff that stunk. Maybe forget like the bad part. Yeah. Um, So yes. And she is like from the outset, the doctor said, you know, you got very narrow hips Oof. And this is not going to go great for you. And so she has the baby and she lives, but like just barely. And Oof. they, this ragtag band of, of people makes it back to Tara. Book four is the early stage of, of reconstruction. Um, it is, I don't, I think there's some overlap in books three and four of Scarlet making it back to Tara and just barely scratching out a life for her and the people who depend on her. Her mother, who she was counting on being there to make things better, has died of typhoid. Oh, wow. And so she's got her sisters, the few slaves who have, who've remained behind and a few other hangers on. Like Tara is pretty much the only house in the areas that has not been burned. All the crops have been burned. They find some animals that people manage to like run off into the woods that didn't get picked up by Yankee soldiers, but they are just barely eking out an existence. And this is, this is both where Scarlet grows up and where she, if, if you've, 
seen the movie or read the book, there's that famous bit about, you know, Laura's my witness. I'll never go hungry again. And that's Mm. in response to like her and everyone around her literally starving as they try to, as they try to exist, like not just with, with what the Yankees have left them in the first place, but also like some Yankees come back and take even more from them. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's just, it's, it's very bad. And then, um, uh, and then uh, the war ends. Book four, you know, the war ends and things are going OK on Tara. Like the things are fine. But then some carpetbaggers and scalawags come around and they start saying, you know, we need you to pay your taxes on this on this nice farm you got. And we know you <laughs> paid taxes already, but it turns out you kind of owe some more taxes. There's this there's this particular guy. He was he's a Yankee who had been an overseer on a plantation who uh, married who married some white trash, and now wants Tara for his own. And so he's just saying, "Oh hey, you gotta pay three hundred dollars in taxes, or you're out on your butt, and I'm gonna take your house." So oh dear. So Scarlet desperate goes to Atlanta to try and find Rhett Butler to marry. So, so has he been since she left Burning Atlanta? He has not been in the book. He helped her escape Atlanta. Okay, okay. Um, and so he is like he is he is not really accepted in in polite society in Atlanta because he's like there. There's a lot of anger at speculators and at people who are seen as like preying on the Confederacy and trying to make a buck while they can. Yeah. Yeah. Like Rhett has taken cotton from the South and taken it to Britain and just stored it and is going to wait and wait and wait to sell it until prices are just absolutely as high as they could possibly be. And people, people think that people like Rhett are part of why the war is going as badly as it is going. If only they would like support the South. And Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of if only stuff sure. okay. happening. Um, but so she goes to Atlanta to... So she goes back to Atlanta in the hopes of finding Rhett Butler because I think she's she's heard that he's around again. Okay. And so Rhett like is obviously attracted to Scarlet the whole time, but she's still got the she's still got a got a she's still carrying a torch for Ashley. Huh. Um she thinks he's like as as fun as she thinks he is and as easy as she finds him to talk to, she doesn't like love him and is sort is of it, intermittently mad at him about yeah things. is it like, wrapped up in any like you're not a southern confe- like confederate man it's not even that like she doesn't really care about that, that yeah much. That's what, okay it's, like she says of Rhett at one point like he's the only one she feels like she can really talk to because she doesn't want to you know she doesn't she doesn't want to worry about all this lady stuff she just wants at a certain point after the war ends, she realizes, like, I just want money. I want to be secure. I never want to be worried about being hungry again. Okay. And that's what Laura's my witness. I'm never, I'll never go never hungry, go hungry again, again. Is, okay. is about. And so when she, like, she comes back to Atlanta and she sees Rhett and he refuses to marry her and he's kind of toying with her a little bit. And so she runs up again. She runs into this guy who was her sister's beau, like, 
while the war was going on and but she notices that he's got like a shop and he's got a little bit of money so scarlet tells him oh my sister's not interested in in you anymore how about we get married and so scarlet takes over the store and she uses some of his money to buy a mill because she's she says you know this city's gonna need rebuilt and if i can get a mill cheap now i can make a ton of money Hmm. selling lumber to people who are trying to rebuild and okay so she is she is sort of shamelessly um, def- like defying her upbringing and and trying to make money and working and doing all these things that ladies are just not supposed to be doing. I yeah, okay. And this book like that's there is a bit of like feminism and progressivism in some of the things that Scarlett does, but she does them for such like self-centered reasons. Like but, like she yeah, is she yeah. is providing for other people around her, but it's sort of secondary to just her own like i got security, security. and yeah exactly i got get and mine. so everybody else is scandalized about this but she can talk to red about oh hey i did this and this and this to my mill and isn't it so smart of me i'm making so much money and red is like yeah you get it girl because he's <laughs> you know he kind of does some of the same stuff himself so red is the only character in the entire book who really understands scarlet and she knows that Okay, um, but she doesn't quite want to like just jump him or whatever. Is that the tension? She that- like she does. Is the lack of tension the tension here? No, or is there, there is tension. Like even as she is fleeing, burning Atlanta, like he smooches her, but good. <laughs> okay, and she's all on fire for him, but Ooh. she's still like is not in love with him and he he decides the last minute i'm gonna go enlist because at the end of the day i am still a southerner and i need to go and do some southern stuff like he every once in a while has these flashes of i play like i don't care about this stuff but the gun literally gun to my head this is still like this is still how i was brought up and how i like how i think um so how does their romance conclude yeah so book the part four is that whole thing and um scarlet's second husband who she married for the store i honestly cannot remember his name for the life of me um this book is so long but she but he dies because he's in the clan and he is like mad about I don't know about everything that people in the clan were mad about. <laughs> yeah. So like, and so, and he gets, so he gets, he gets killed, but Rhett is key to saving everybody else in the, in who's part of this clan because like there, it's basically every white Southern gentleman left in Atlanta is involved in the clan in some way. And so Scarlet is out like writing because like tending to the business of her mills, which she shouldn't be because she's a lady, but, but she gets attacked and then everybody is all upset that, that she would get attacked and then they go out to get vengeance and, but the Yankees are tipped off and they're really upset about the clan activities because they're trying to do their own stuff and they're going to hang everybody who's in the clan or run them off. And, but Rhett like crafts this, story about how oh actually they were all at a brothel and there was no there was no like the people who got killed were in a drunken duel and there's like there's no reason for the yankees to run off all these southern gentlemen and i don't know are you lost yet no no it just seems like this actually this kind of like tall tale that Rhett is concocting Mm -hmm. um seems to 
it does jive with what I've read about how the book treats the clan a little bit, right? Where it yeah, like, the, where seems they're to like underplay yeah. how heinous the even the first incarnation was, and then certainly in the wake of the second incarnation of the clan, like I think in the movie they never call them the clan by name. Um, uh, there's an author named Pat Conroy who wrote a preface to a later edition of Gone with the Wind and says that uh, Mitchell's portrayal of the Ku Klux Klan uh, has the same romanticized role it had in The Birth of a Nation and appears to be a benign combination of the Elks Club and a men's equestrian society. Oh, no. <laughs> Which, yeah. Not good. It's not great. Um, and then part five, she gets married to Rhett. And then and like has a child with him named Bonnie for the Bonnie okay. Blue flag that was the first flag of the Confederacy. Okay. Um and Rhett loves Scarlet. She's still in love with Ashley, even though she has fun with Rhett. Did Ashley ever come back from the Oh war? yeah, Ashley came back. Okay, yeah, he, okay. he was fine and he's with he's with Melly and they like every like two years have a meeting that convinces Scarlett that she still loves Ashley. Okay. It might um, we hadn't heard from him in a while in my head, he was just on the moon. Like he was just gone. Eh, he <laughs> might as well be on the moon because he's <laughs> and and Rhett says this of him, but there is a class of people who came back from this war and they were made to exist in a specific time and a specific society that does not exist anymore. And so they don't know how to, they just don't know how to look ahead anymore. Like they are, they can no longer see a future for themselves. And so all they do is look to the past. And that's like Ashley's whole thing is he's sort of ineffectual and sad and mopey. The whole, I feel like I've read a lot of articles about, people like that lately <laughs> just in the ha, news ha, i just ha, ha. feel like it i don't really know all of a sudden i have economic anxiety i, <laughs> I just burst a capillary in my face <laughs> uh so like their marriage is not going great it goes okay for a while but then it stops going okay <laughs> <laughs> Um, they have a they have a child they have Bonnie and Rhett loves Bonnie he loves okay. her so much and he is determined like we have been cut off from polite Southern society and these like carpetbaggers and other Republicans are not going to be forever down here like they're going to get kicked out eventually because they're being so corrupt and so horrible that people are just not going to stand for it long term and so if I want my daughter to have a future. She needs to be connected with all these Southern families. And so I'm going to start acting the way I'm supposed to act. And Scarlett, you'd better not do anything to like, whoa, to wreck that up for like your daughter. He went, like he, he wanted to like retcon himself. Rhett Butler did. Retcon? Uh, I said that on purpose. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Like he starts, he starts. He convinces people to disband the Klan because it just kept getting the Yankees all up in arms. Um, he starts putting together these political like organizations to get Democrats back in the legislature and then to get a Democratic governor elected again. Okay. Um, he's giving money to the right causes. He's taking his kids to church. He is always seen with Bonnie, who is who 
Will on cue basically say that the worst kind of people are scallywags. Oh my god! And the best kind of people are democrats. Oh god! <laughs> and Bonnie is shown very explicitly to be sort of an analog to Scarlet because she looks just like Scarlet, and she even reminds Scarlet of her dad a couple of times, huh. like in how like stubborn she can be. And he's going to raise her to be the lady that Scarlet did not go on. Not to even be. that. He's he's raising her to be a version of Scarlet that loves him. Oh, oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And it's Pygmalion, never, it's never, ever, ever. It's never, ever, ever sexual or weird. Like it's no, never, no, no, it's no, never no. ever that. But it's he just is, like it, the way he is with her is very, very sweet. Actually, yeah, 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 yeah. But he won't say no to her, and so she starts riding a pony, and she wants to start like you know riding that pony while it does jumps and he's like all right anything you want sweetie and then like she does some jumps on this little pony and then she says okay i want to i want to jump over a fence that's a foot and a half high now and he's like okay maybe when you're six because she's like four or five when this is happening and she eventually wears him down and so he builds this fence that's a foot and a half high and let me let me take you back so so you remember that Scarlet's mother Ellen died yes, right before she got typhoid, back to Tara. Yeah, yeah. Typhoid. So Scarlet's father Gerald was never quite the same after that. It sort of between the the war ending and Ellen dying, it sort of broke him. Yeah. Um, but there is this, like his one of Scarlet's sisters tries to get him to go and sign this like oath of loyalty to the United States, basically saying like, Oh, I, I was always a sympathizer. I never did anything for the Confederacy. Like I never did any of this stuff. And she gets Gerald super drunk and wears him down until he says he's going to sign this thing. And then she says, she mentions that like one of the white trash families who he always thought he was better than he always worked to be better than, also did this oh. and he snaps out of his fugue for a second and he's like are you telling me that these people signed this thing and he yells at her and says she's no daughter of his and he gets on his horse and he starts singing all these old irish songs that he used to sing and he all one a thing he always did that Ellen didn't want him to do was like jump over fences on his horse when he was drunk uh, specific don't do that but okay. <laughs> and well, I mean, he did it all the time though, and he yeah. shouldn't have done it. But it's so he's riding and he's drunk and he's himself for the first time in years, and he's and he says, oh, Ellen, Ellen watched this one or or something to that effect. And he jumps the fence and the horse trips and he is thrown and breaks his neck and he dies. And so flash forward to Bonnie on her little pony. Uh oh saying mother look at look at me do this one and scarlet is literally thinking where have i heard something like this before no. i'm struggling i'm trying to remember where why does this seem so familiar to what? me something is just tickling the back of my mind this about baseline this. is familiar i don't remember the rest of the song but i can just i that hi-hat what am just... i thinking of and just before her adorable daughter who everybody loves is thrown from this pony and dies. Oh. She remembers and she tries to stop it, but she's too late. Okay. And then from there, their marriage kind of falls apart and, and Rhett falls out of love with her basically. Like he's okay. So this is, this is the very last chapter of the book where, 
Uh, Melanie has just died and Scarlett has realized finally because Ashley has responded to this to this like a helpless child <laughs> Uh-oh. that she loved a version of Ashley that she like created in her mind when she was 17 and never really mm. loved the real thing. And if she'd ever actually gotten it, she would have immediately lost interest in it. Like she's lost interest in so many things. Um, yeah, that's very human. So Every, Rhett, a lot she, of teenagers she's, do that. She yeah. finally realizes that she loves Rhett and that he is he is what's going to make this better and they can just they can grab onto each other and they can make it work because she has realized that he loved her also. Uh-huh. And um so Rhett, Rhett says to her, "Scarlet, did it ever occur to you that even the most deathless love could wear out?" She looked at him speechless, her mouth around O. Mine wore out, he went on, against Ashley Wilkes and your insane obstinacy that makes you hold on like a bulldog to anything you think you want. Mine wore out. But love can't wear out. Yours for Ashley did, but I never really loved Ashley. Then you certainly gave a good imitation of it up till tonight, Scarlet. I'm not upbraiding you, accusing you, reproaching you. That time has passed, so spare me your defenses and your explanations. If you can manage to listen to me for a few minutes without interrupting, I can explain what I mean. Though God knows I see no need for explanations. The truth's so plain. And they have a, you know, you're so brutal to those who love you, Scarlet. You take their love and hold it over their heads like a whip. Does that feel like... Scarlet's a bad person. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure out where Andrew comes down on this on this one. Scarlet is objectively a bad the, person. This side of the pony fence. On the one hand, she does make decisions, especially for Melanie, especially right after the war, that do keep her alive and keep others around her alive. But she's only ever looking out for number one to the extent that, like, at one of her mills, she's so upset that it's not making money that she hires a nasty, mean little guy and hires out convicts, basically, to work on the mill. And she says, you do whatever you want as long as I can get wood from you when I need it. Oh, boy. And he's, like, not feeding these people and he's treating them he he treats them so badly that they are compared to slaves at, at more than one sure point. Um, yeah there is that part of what is it the, the 14th amendment 13th one of the i think it's the 14th amendment that has a like a thing about using convicts for for work that like was a thing that we're still dealing with today yeah i'm um, not ugh, okay so yeah, so okay, so you were like, all right. No, so you they, were you were I I can't see how you get out of this book thinking that Scarlet is anything other than a bad person. Like often she is just pragmatic. Okay. But when she is put in a position of like having things and of having power, she is so like frivolous with it and so like her her motto basically, like her catchphrase to the extent that that anybody in this book has one i'll think of it all tomorrow at tara i can stand it then tomorrow i'll think of some way to get him back after all tomorrow is another day that's how the book ends she is constantly anytime like ellen is in her head telling her not to do something or she has a twinge of guilt or anything gets hard she always says tomorrow tomorrow i'll put it off till tomorrow i'll think of it tomorrow okay okay and Doing that a couple times is fine, but like having that be a defining thing about your character, I think means that you might not be a great person <laughs> or at least a, a terribly flawed person at the at your best, maybe perhaps 
Um, so is this a, is this a romantic story, Andrew? It is. I mean, it has elements of that in it. Okay. Um, There's a little bit of bodice ripping that goes on. I think Mitchell was reading a lot of porn when she wrote this, <laughs> according to the research that I did. Like she was very interested in. Uh, and in there's steamy literature. There's a lot that's been made of a sequence in the film where like Rhett uh basically like takes her upstairs against like really fervent nose on her part. Yeah, and it happens in the book too. So Even like, though in in the book you're inside her head and you find out that she really does she really wants it. Yeah, so it's been cr- criticized as a as a pretty blatant uh scene of marital rape and if you don't think about it think of it that way like maybe you should consider just it just think uh, about it just think about it that way um okay so like i think i've gotten a pretty good idea of what you of what you found like interesting and compelling about the book which i think speaks to probably the a, a decent majority of why it's been so important i mean i had i had to i blasted through a lot of stuff where this book is so affecting is in its description of what war is like and how pointless it often is okay like when when mitchell is writing about being holed up in atlanta and like the first time people in atlanta can hear like the cannon fire yeah and how the advancing troops are like it's like a little black cloud on the edge of the sky that really quickly grows and and becomes the entire sky. She talks about how everybody in in Atlanta really loves um, General. I think it Johnson or Johnston. I think Johnson really loves him, but then he starts losing, and they're all calling for his head. Huh. Even though there's like there's he cannot be doing better than he is doing with what with the resources sure. that he has. Sure. Um. But then I also know you like were the, like the, the just the war book stuff, like the the portrayal. Uh, like you do even as super problematic as all the race relations stuff is, and all the reconstruction stuff is, and as one sided and, and awful as it all is, like she does evoke like genuine like a genuine sense of tragedy at this way of life that has disappeared which i think happens anytime any big old war happens is like you lose something that you can't get back and she creates a real like yearning for that that is really affecting even though you know like yeah i don't know like when she talks about the cause like of it's very much of that like Confederate apologia. Yeah. Can I, that, can I like, dive into that real quick? Yeah. Yeah. Let me, <laughs> or do you want to wrap up something else? I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I do. It's just slavery is, is not really brought up. It's just like, they're fighting for the cause. They're fighting for their way of life. And the slaves are happy with things the way they are. It's pretty much the way that, the way that things are presented. Yeah. So the other thing that you asked me to, to look up a little bit was, so this book is, you know, decades removed from the civil war, two generations ish removed. Um, and this thing that we've been referring to is the lost cause this myth of why the South, was fighting and a myth that the South told itself in real time to kind of speed along reconciliation. Right. Well, and also like it, it's, it's partly that and it's partly 
a way to avoid having to reckon with yeah that's what i'm saying yeah the horrors mm-hmm. of slavery yeah because if you are reintegrating back into the country it's way easier to say that the war was because we had this like upstanding christian moral way of life which is a thing that was used as part of the argument and the north was this greedy industrious part of the country that just wanted our stuff um and that if they did if they were going to win it was because they had all this like technical advantage and the numbers but we had superior skill and courage and it wasn't about slavery it was about states rights and uh states rights by god by god say in this um and it helped you know um there's a historian, David Blight, who said, uh, In the 1890s, Confederate memories no longer dwelled as much on mourning or explaining defeat. They offered a set of conservative traditions by which the entire country could gird itself against racial, political, and industrial disorder. And by the sheer virtue of losing heroically, the Confederate soldier provided a model of masculine devotion and courage in an age of gender anxieties and ruthless material striving. There's another quote from him that I found really interesting. One of the ideas the reconciliation reconciliationist lost cause instilled deeply into the national culture is that even when americans lose they win which like that explain that unlocked a lot (laughs) is this idea that like you're still american you're still here and we're not really going to confront what you were doing because it's too difficult to do that so like when we just have even in wars where we have by any reasonable metric, like quote unquote lost. Yes. Um, like I think Vietnam is the biggest, yeah. but if you talk about uh, like even Korea or the, the war on terror that's been yep. going on for most of our adult lives, yep. like we just have a problem with admitting defeat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's, there's this kind of cleaning up of the original causes of, of, a lot of the confederate leaders so there's this thing called that's referred to as the cornerstone speech which was delivered by the confederate vp alexander stevens that like explicitly said that like slavery was part of the natural order um and that get that got glossed over as the decades wore on and it became a lot more about memorializing the men who were lost and providing for the families that they left behind um and you see groups like the united daughters of the confederacy crop up um and so I pulled some other other information because obviously Confederate memorials and what to do with them has been in the news, n- not just recently, but for a while now. And sure. um, the Southern Poverty Law Center conducted a study in 2016 called Whose, Her- Whose Heritage? Public Symbols of the Confederacy. And they did this in response to the shooting in Charleston at the Emanuel Church um, where nine black people were killed uh, and the shooter um, was revealed to have lots of Confederate paraphernalia, and a lot of folks started looking at that symbol and what it means and doesn't mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found that, like, there were fifteen hundred, you know, memorials of some kind, and that the two largest, like, upticks of them occurred in area like times when we were grappling with civil rights. So between nineteen hundred and nineteen twenty. Um, which is following the Plessy v. Ferguson decision, a bunch of Jim Crow laws go into effect, and the NAACP is established in 1909. And then the other big uptick of these memorials is in the Civil Rights era from 1954 to 1968. So you see them not in a, like, 
direct response to the war. It's not like the war just ended and let's erect a bunch of statues. Like that did happen in some places, but the big upticks are part of this like, we're not going to grapple with what these people were doing and fighting for. No, it's we're, all about just like, we got to honor their stuff. We got to honor the sacrifice and the time that is no longer here. And the this idealized South that doesn't exist and probably didn't exist. Um or existed for a very small cast of people. I think right? I think that is that is that's really probably more accurate, it. and that's yeah. that's because Gone with the Wind has had such a huge like cultural impact over the years, and it's written so at such length and so like with such careful attention to detail that I think a lot of people, not unreasonably, have taken it to be maybe more factual than it is, mm. mm-hmm. and have seen this to be a realistic picture of antebellum South and like reconstruction. And again, do I believe that elements of it were true at least for some people? Yeah, of course. But like looking at it with a larger historical lens, like, I don't know. Like it's, it's not quite fiction, but it is. It was not reality for for most of the people who had to live through this this era. I don't think. Yeah, for sure, and and that's a thing that we're still dealing with, because we've never, and I don't, you know, we talked about this on other shows also, but there's not, a, you know, there's no magic bullet to solve what is America's inherent problem. <laughs> like it is its singular inherent problem, mm-hmm. um, and. We've got generations of fiction of people just trying to tell the stories that they know and that they are moved by, um, and some of some of the biggest ones like this one are are I think in the long arc of history not. Ugh, they're, they they're asking different questions than perhaps the ones that we should be asking, and and answering, you know, other questions. I don't yeah, know. it's just it, like. So I, I've read, and, and if you go if you go and look at some of the Amazon reviews of this book, you're going to see people talking about <laughs> about the this book is like striking a blow against political correctness because it has Ugh. the N word in it or whatever. Like there's a bunch of dumb crap, and <laughs> I know there have been some efforts to include this book in like reading curricula yeah. that have been rebuffed in part because of like the language it uses and and maybe the views it espouses but i think people get more hung up on on yeah the yeah. n-word you which should... happens with like mark twain and, and, and some other stuff to kill a mockingbird and stuff stuff like that yeah like it is this book it's it's really well written mm-hmm. and it does really effectively get across like like this one viewpoint about this this time in history and like this perspective in history like i i think if you were to take this and to teach it in a school of course you talk about okay this is this is the outdated stuff that is that is bad and of course it's it's wrong and here's why but also like here is the tradition it comes from and like why it it was written that way and why the people who wrote it thought that way like I, i'm not a college professor but that's sort of what we have attempted to do even in the short time we've spent talking about the book right right, right, right. like it's it's 
I think this book is very teachable and and you can do it without condoning any of the things that anybody in it does, which I'd certainly yeah. do not. Like I I think sure. I think that Scarlet is a bad person. I think the Confederacy was bad and I think the cause of the Confederacy, which was slavery, was bad. Like yes. <laughs> let me be completely unequivocal about that. But also to read this stuff about the lost cause mentality and about people trying to apologize for the clan and for and people saying oh you know slaves had it pretty good during this time to read that stuff and then to do more research about the people who thought that way and why they thought that way i think can yeah mm-hmm. shed light on debates that we are still continuing to have yeah i think it gets fuzzier or or i think it gets less useful when you start having good discussions about uh, when people make new work today, like there's, I think that butts up against other representation conversations that we're having and like, why, why bother telling stories about X, Y, Z? Whereas like this book is sitting here, this history is sitting here and we can learn from it. Um, and, and we probably should do more of that. Um, I don't think you, someone should go right gone with the wind again. As well, I don't like I don't think that people should believe the stuff that is passed yeah. in this book. Yeah, and I, but I, I think you should. You should. I think it is possible to read it and appreciate what it does well while still grappling with the misconceptions that are still part of so many people's understanding of the Civil War and what it was about. And yeah, and, and race in America, and yeah, yeah. And I think based on our interests and in our like. Not interest necessarily, but like where we feel comfortable doing the historical research. We have given you one discussion of this book where I think there is just as long a discussion, if not longer, about even more detailed discussion of the problematic depiction of slavery. And And there's also probably one where we spend more time talking about the characters in the plot because there are a lot of them that are really fascinating. Like Rhett is a really interesting dude. Yeah. I Scarlet, know why, is, Scarlet is really interesting. Like they're I both really know why complex. she liked Ashley so much, though. He sounds like a turd. <laughs> he just like he read books and he talked about music, but he Damn also it, that's could. Me. But he also could hold his liquor and ride horses with the best of a southern that's gentleman. That's not me. And she that's just like me. and she never, she never felt like she knew what was in his mind, and part of it was the mystery. Huh. And then when you get to talk to someone alone, like once every two years, you just yeah. don't get to put those illusions to bed very quickly. <laughs> That's a good point. Like by the time the book ends, Scarlett has had three kids, been married three times, and she's 28. <laughs> yeah, that's different. That's not the normal. Ex- that's uh, for some for some people, but that is not common no. as common as it was. Huh. Well, I guess that's all there is to say about Gone there's with one, the Wind. There's Andrew. one passage. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it a struck me funny as so much as like a struck me sad. Okay, yeah, hit me with that struck <laughs> me I, sad. I pasted it. I pasted it in the in the Slack a couple of nights ago as I was barreling through the back half of this book, but um, there is this passage about a character it says the mantle of spinsterhood was definitely on her shoulders now she was 25 and looked it and so there was no longer any need for her to try to be attractive whoa (laughs) 
Get out the game. You're 25. Get oh, out. man. Yeah. The, now, sex now in the like city you would have blown this still, woman's mind. Right. And now it's like you can still be on your parents' health insurance until you're 26. <laughs> you're basically an infant until you're 26. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, Andrew, I'm glad right. you read this book. Thanks for I'm telling me about it. I'm glad I read it, too, and I hope I did it. I hope I did both the good parts and the bad parts justice because it's a complicated book to talk about, especially in our format, I think. Yeah, for sure. It's um, easily a book we could have done multiple episodes on. Um, and that would just be a very different vibe. This is one of those ones that I feel like it's, it's most often the case with long books, which sucks for us. But yeah. it's one of those that I think the conversation might have been very different if we both read it. Yes. Yeah. I love finishing your sentences. Thanks thanks for letting me do that. You're welcome. I'm going to try and finish one of yours. How about you say something and I'll try and finish it. Hey, if you have thoughts about Gone with the Wind, you can stick them in your butt. <laughs> no. <laughs> you can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com or so, hit us oh up man, I did on it bad. social I media at twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. A lot of folks reaching out after last week's Charlotte's Web episode. Was that only last week? Thank you to John, Lucas, Amanda, Sarah, Alexa, Graham, Matt, Rachel, Melissa, Juliana, Charlotte, Emily, and many more. Um, Andrew, folks want to know more about the show. Where should they go? They should go stick it in their butt. <laughs> No, actually, they should go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Oh, it's been a long episode, hasn't it? Uh, up there, we I have. I recommended this podcast to my friends because I like these guys' like discussion of the history of Gone with the Wind. They tried to be really end... careful and nuanced until the end when they told me to stick it in my butt. Boy, this is not as funny as we think it is, I bet. No, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, you can go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. We have links to uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, RSS. You can use all of those to subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they come out on Mondays. Um, we also have links to our head HeadGum, our podcast network, and our Patreon page. We're going to have some changes coming up on that Patreon page, I guess, this week, right? Like, we we have discussed April them. April 1 and, is the idea. And finalized them, but it's, yeah, it's going to, there's going to be some changes coming on April 1st. I think it's going to be good stuff that everybody likes. That's I'm the hope. looking forward to some of them. Yeah, you'll so see. So I hope you guys do, too. Um, Craig, our... April schedule is going to be up on that website pretty yeah. soon too. Do you want to do you want to give the folks a little bit of a preview of what they can expect? Yeah, I'll tell them the whole list. And if you haven't, if you've listened to this before, you've seen it online, then you are in the know. So, we're, I'm going to read A is for Alibi by Sue Grafton. Then Andrew's going to read Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. Mm. Then I'm going to read The New Life by Warren Pamuk. Then Andrew's going to read Passion's Promise by Danielle Steele. And then Ooh. the the month will close out. Uh, with Peyton Place by Grace Metallius, which we just recorded our episode with our friends at the New York Public Library's The Librarian Is In podcast. Gwen and Frank came by. Uh, and that was That a was lot super of fun. fun, yeah. So uh, that's our schedule. And um, yeah, that's that. This, you don't ep- have this episode. Else? You good? All right. No, this episode is gone with the wind. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everybody. We will be back next week. And until then, Try to be happy.
That was a HeadGum Podcast.